0: We ask, Lord, that you would work in and through this time together in the Scriptures. May we grow in our faith. I pray that you'd challenge us by your Spirit, that you'd teach us the meaning of this passage, that we would understand it accurately and apply it faithfully. I ask that you would, by the conviction of the Spirit, develop and grow us as a church and We pray, Father, on behalf of those among us who know not Christ yet as Savior, and pray that you would draw them to the light of the gospel. And as the gospel has dawned upon us and you have drawn us to salvation through Christ crucified and risen, we praise you as a church that you are growing us, and sometimes that is painful, but we praise you that you continue to teach us your truth and teach us to walk in faithfulness to you, I pray that you would work here to illumine the Scriptures and aid us to that end. And as we gather around the Lord's table uh, later this morning, I pray that you'd be even now preparing our hearts to commune with Christ, risen, crucified, risen, and coming again. And Lord, before you now we bow, seeking your aid and your care for us as your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen. On a mission trip to Zambia some years ago, I lodged uh, overnight with several pastors in the capital city of Lusaka. The next day, our host uh, took us on a brief tour of the city by car, and we went through this area where there were a, a row of embassies. They were all kind of tightly grouped there. Modest buildings by our standards, but pretty impressive by Zambian standards, and it was fun to see those embassies, and obviously they showed us the U.S. Embassy as we passed by. Just put yourself in that scene and imagine as we're coming upon embassy after embassy, and then here's the U.S. Embassy, we find that it's in absolute disarray. Broken windows, grass uncut. Gardens overgrown with weeds, building, peeling, and in need of paint. And as we expressed our dismay and wondering what was going on here, the host said to us, yeah, and it's also being used as a drug smuggling operation. Think of it, in Lusaka, this is the embassy of the United States. This is all the people will ever see. And it would send a very bad message to them about our nation, and rightly so, if that was the condition. Think of this. Every local church is an embassy of Christ's kingdom. Not in a physical sense, although I think a building certainly sends a message to a church's community. But I speak more in a figurative sense. We are an embassy of Christ's kingdom announcing the hope of salvation from sin and a kingdom to come that will restore all things. Our life together is that embassy of the kingdom of Christ on earth. And the passage before us today calls us then to face the fact that Jesus Christ will hold us accountable for how we represent his kingdom as a church. What is the local church? How is it to function? What are its priorities? What do we believe? What has God revealed to us in his inerrant word? And in light of the passage today before us, where do we get our ideas and draw our inspiration for how Eden Baptist Church lives its life together as Jesus ambassadors on earth? Where do we go for that information? How do we understand that calling? These are very important questions to every one of us. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church says in a sense here in this passage there are many pagan temples in this city. There is only one temple of the Lord. Only one temple where His Spirit dwells. And that is you. Corinth has nothing else. You are it. And you need renovation to exercise faithful stewardship as an outpost, an embassy, a temple of God in the city of Corinth. By pulling philosophies and practices, motives and methods from their godless culture into the life of the church, the Corinthian church was defaming Christ's name and they were shrouding the gospel witness. This was serious trouble. Trouble. Multiplied many times more than what we would think if we came across a U.S. embassy that was in such disarray as I've described. This needs to get fixed, Paul says. And there could literally, not figuratively, there could literally be hell to pay if they didn't get it fixed if they didn't wake up. So Paul continues to plead with the church to end its divisions, its quarreling over favorite teachers as they parroted the culture around them. He pleads with them to embrace the foolishness of God in the eyes of the world. The foolishness of a crucified Savior. Of a risen Savior. That was as much folly in that day as a crucified Messiah. he calls upon them to embrace these truths this wisdom from god and to cast off their obsession with rhetoric and man's wisdom and philosophies now we live in a very different world as we've noted over these weeks but the crossover principle is to make certain that eden baptist church is a living temple in which the holy spirit is at work through his world through his word not a world parroting club this is vital to us in our consideration so rebuking their factionalism rebuking their infighting as they chose favorite teachers as if they were competitors we remember chapter 3 and verse 5 Paul asked what then is Apollos what is Paul servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each I planted Apollos watered. God gave the growth So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Notice that phrase. It's going to hit that much harder here coming forward. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. He shifts here, Without notice to a different image. You are God's building. This passage now hinges on two warnings. In a sense, for the Corinthian church, warnings that we must carefully heed as a local church today. And the first, in the first seven in verses, ten through seventeen, God will one day test the worth of our ministry as a local church. It's where we'll concentrate our attention today. But this is what we learn from this passage: God will one day test the worth of our ministry as a local church. Let me pick verse ten apart carefully here, just by phrases. Verse ten according to the grace of God given to me, that is a subtle reference to Paul as an apostle, as one that is sent by God, by His grace, to them. I, he, said, he continues on, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. In other words, he was the one who first preached the gospel of salvation to them, and by responding to that message, they were saved. Paul was the evangelist, the proclaimer, who as a wise engineer laid down a foundation on which the church was now being built up. But now Paul was not there, right? He's he's not there with them. He's writing them this letter. Next phrase of verse 10. And someone else is building upon it. God sent me, I proclaim the gospel, but right now someone else is building on this foundation. This is not a reference to Apollos or Peter because what he says in this passage cannot apply to them. The reference is to leaders in the Corinthian church and in a lesser sense to the entire church but certainly in a significant sense to all of them that were there. There are others now building on the foundation that I laid. And then as verse 10 finishes out here in this verse division, let each one take care how he builds upon it. This is a warning. This is not a warning to individual Christians to build our lives on the right foundation. That is appropriate. We need to do that. That is right. That's not what he's talking about here. I proclaim the gospel. You responded. I am now gone. There are others building upon that foundation. Take care how you build upon it. How you build the church upon the foundation of Christ crucified and risen. Verse 11, we see that fleshed out here. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 2 as he speaks there uh, uh, in that passage of this foundation that has been laid. Verse 11, chapter 2, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That is, in the response to the Gospel, in the indwelling Holy Spirit, we now, on that foundation of Christ, continue on. He speaks of that foundation as the bedrock on which the true church is built. As we see in Acts 4 and verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's your foundation. The church is on that foundation. The bedrock on which every true church is built is Christ crucified and risen. The milk of that gospel truth is how we are saved. The solid food of that gospel is how our union with Christ in the gospel changes every aspect of our lives. Working out the implications of that gospel is the meat of the Word. Now on that gospel bedrock, church leaders in particular and church members in general can build the church up in one of two ways. Notice verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now go back to verse 9 and remember. You, that's plural, y'all are God's building. You all together are His temple. That temple is built on the one foundation, Christ crucified and risen. Verse 12, if you build on that foundation with these materials each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, the day will test it, the day will reveal it. So church leaders and teachers can build on the foundation of Christ with solid, enduring materials or with cheap, useless materials. Paul is not talking about the good works of individual Christians. This passage is commonly taught that way, you find it very hard to find any commentator that actually goes that way. Because contextually, this isn't about individual Christians and how they develop their life. As important as that is, and as applicable as that can be, this is about the church. What are we building together on the foundation? So he's talking about local churches, how those churches build on that god's temple on the gospel on one hand we can use gold silver precious building stones like granite and marble i think is what he means on the other hand we can use cheap materials such as wood hay or straw don't read these materials allegorically people get lost in the weeds about what gold means and what straw means it leads nowhere he's just using arbitrary illustrations of building materials I mean, press them all that hard. You're going to build a building with straw. You're going to build a building with gold. Uh, It's just—it's just an illustration. So, a local church—the point is—can build onto the foundation of the gospel with materials such as quarreling debates about different teachers, false conversions. Easy believism, just bring people in, tell them, Jesus loves you, don't you want to love Jesus, you're in. Prayerlessness. There are churches from every appearance like they just don't pray. It's just not what church is. Materialism, pride, self promotion, political machinations of self serving leaders. And wow, in our day, entertainment. We can can take the gospel of Jesus Christ and we can build with these kinds of useless materials. The gospel is sounded. By the grace of God, people trust Christ as Savior, but the methods and the motivations of the local church are all off. Worldly ways and means are used to gain attention, to draw crowds, to satisfy hearers, but the church is not built up by the Holy Spirit through His Word. So what? Who cares? What does it matter? Well, says Paul, the day is going to reveal it. The day here being the day of the Lord, the day when God judges our motives and how we have lived our lives, and that day will burn like a refiner's fire and consume everything that doesn't matter. Alternatively, however, that same fire will prove the worth of all that we did well, all that we did for the glory of God, all that we did in obedience to Him as we together built up the church on this foundation. So there are two possible outcomes to the revealing fire of the day of the Lord. Here they are, verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That's the good outcome. By God's grace, we human beings with all our warts and all of our weaknesses can build well on the foundation. He's giving us that hope. By God's grace, Eden Baptist Church can calibrate our church life to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as revealed in the Scriptures. We can say in all that we do that Jesus is Lord and Savior and coming King. We can elevate prayer and honor God's Word. We can pursue the purity of the church, proclaim the Gospel, baptize converts, confess our sins to one another, and labor to build one another up in faith, hope, and love. Such materials, quote-unquote, will survive the refining fire and be rewarded by the Lord in eternity. Can you imagine? I don't know what it's going to look like. I can't tell you. I have no clue how you judge these things, how you know where you're on track exactly or what Jesus is going to do. But can you imagine Eden Baptist Church hearing from Christ regarding our stewardship of this body Well done, good and faithful servants. How valuable is that to you? How valuable is that to me? May we prize it. May that matter more than what anyone thinks or what anything accomplishes. We built on the foundation what was good, what was solid, what will last for all eternity. May that be our aim. That's the positive. The negative, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the works that are built on that foundation as a local church are all lost, though the person... Is saved. Now, this verse has been twisted a million ways and caused all types of trouble to people. And let's just clip off a couple here. This is not a reference to purgatory, as some have imagined. Note that the person in view here is not purified by fire, not purged, purgatorial. There's not a purging here of the person of sin by judgment. The person Paul has in mind is one who builds up the church. And notice that it is his labors that are tested for their worth, not his sins that are burned away. His labors are tested for their worth. That fire will reveal a right, solid foundation and the salvation of the individual. But what the fire is revealing is that what was built up was useless so it's not a purging of the person it's rather a revealing of the works that are built on that foundation of christ secondly this is not a reference to the so-called carnal christian this is a teaching that people by getting off what we talked about last week by getting off on that interpretation and pulling it with them have argued that Paul is talking about individuals who live like the devil all of their lives, who show no evidence really of conversion outside of professing faith in Christ. They go into eternity, and everything about them is burned off, and by the skin of their teeth they get into heaven because they asked Jesus to save them once. That is not what's going on here. We've already understood that. This is a a corporate context. This is about leaders who are laboring to build the local church on the foundation of the gospel. This isn't intending to give us a theology about who's saved and who's not. So what is it? Thirdly, this is a reference to pastors, to Christian leaders who labor in local churches with worldly ways and means such that nothing that they do really matters eternally. That's frightening to think of that possibility. But that's what he's aiming at here. That he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking to the leaders of that church and saying, that could be you. You can stand before Christ and everything that you've done in the church is just burned up and useless. Now, Thankfully, some truth leaks through. And some people are genuinely saved in churches such as this. But at the end of the day, on the final day, all their work is meaningless. The methods of entertainment, the prideful levity, the choreography, the business savvy, the Madison Avenue ingenuity, the pop psychology of sappy sentimentality, the moralistic therapeutic deism, gone. It's going to mean nothing. It builds large churches in our setting not going to last look at it real good now because that's the last you're seeing it it's not going to heaven it won't survive the fire we've been horrified to watch um, the results of the earthquake on february 6th, another on february 20th in southeast turkey northwest syria and then in southern turkey some I think nearing—I don't know latest numbers—but some 50,000 people have lost their lives, hundreds of thousands of homeless. And again, where will the tally end? But 47,000 buildings reduced to rubble. Some of those buildings, they'll—they'll they'll find, and are finding and litigation is starting were compromised because some architect took money to cut corners. To build weaker buildings and to profit from it while the earthquake revealed what was going on behind closed doors. In some cases, it brings these buildings down and causes death because somebody wanted to make some money. Just thinking of that by way of analogy, that's what the day of the Lord will do. It will be the earthquake that tests this local church, as it tested the Corinthian church. That day will expose false methods and faulty motivations, and some church ministries that look so good on earth will be reduced to ashes. I really believe you're with me. I want nothing to do with verse 15. I want nothing to do with that now or forever. May God help us labor together in a way that pleases Christ and a way that will bear fruit for eternity. In verses 16 and 17 then, Paul drives this point home in a most forceful way, warning the Corinthians about what they are building on the foundation that he has laid. And here it is. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Everything has been about that thus far in the book. You are God's temple. That's plural. Plural. That's not you individual Christian are God's temple, which is also true. He'll make that point elsewhere, but not here. Here he's saying you corporately as a church, you are God's temple. This is a theme that Paul uses often to the Ephesians as we read it earlier. You are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's who you are. You are as a local church built on the foundation of the gospel, a place, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us is among us, teaching us, directing us, convicting us, encouraging us. Our paraclete, the one who goes with us in advocacy and help, is in this house. The Apostle Peter said, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the local church is a blood-bought, spirit-indwelt body. The Holy Spirit mediating the presence of Christ in convicting, unifying, and forgiving grace. Paul says to the Corinthians, and the Spirit says to us today through him, this is who you are, people. There are many pagan temples in Corinth. There is only one temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Make certain that you are a building... That you are a temple, a lighthouse of gospel salvation and reconciliation. Why calibrate your temple to the ways of unbelievers outside of it? Your worldly approach to church life may even destroy the church. And here the warning gets very serious, verse 17. We want nothing to do with verse 15. I don't think verse 17 is a threat to our church, but we need to be aware of it. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So what is he saying? There could be in the Corinthian church pastors, leaders, ministers of the gospel, who are building in such a way that's not just building badly on the right foundation but who are actually destroying the foundation. This is a danger in Corinth because of the interest in human philosophy and wisdom. Bringing that into the assembly can actually be an attack on the gospel itself and can be uprooting the very foundation. Anyone who destroys the church like that will be destroyed. You are that temple, he says to them. You, plural, a reference again to the local church, You are that temple. Anyone who destroys it will be destroyed, will be judged eternally by God. So here we're not talking about a believer who builds badly on the right foundation. We're talking here about unbelievers who infiltrate the church and take out the foundation. And we can name a number of those around us. They claim the name of Jesus Christ and they want nothing to do with Him. The foundation is gone. In verses 18-23 through 23 then, a second line of thought. God will one day test the worth of our ministry as a local church. We face that test. We want to build rightly on the foundation. And then secondly, applying worldly wisdom in our ministry is a sure way to fail the test. Applying worldly wisdom in our ministry is a sure way to fail the test. So Paul returns here to the problem that is plaguing the Corinthian church. They were building on the gospel foundation the worthless straw of human reason, the flashy rhetorical skills of favorite preachers. Sticks. That's all that was. They wanted the Christian church to look like a participant in human ways, and in human wisdom. They wanted to play the game of the sophists, who were the rock stars of Corinthian society. So Paul warns here, applying worldly wisdom in our ministry is a sure way to fail the test that will come, that we've considered up here through verse 17. Verse 18, Let no one deceive himself, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. What's Paul saying? You must lay aside this folly of embracing the world's wisdom. Don't go there. You must become a fool in that sense in order to truly embrace the wisdom of God. Don't seek the world's counsel and ways. Realize that you are the people of a crucified Savior and that message will make no sense to unbelievers relying on human reason. Don't try to calibrate the message to what the world will accept. The only thing that they're going to accept is a bowling ball as a life preserver. That's it. Don't try to calibrate to that humanistic message. The wisdom of God is folly to the world, and likewise the wisdom of man is folly to God. Gordon Fee puts this nicely, he says, In the cross and resurrection of Christ, God has befooled human wisdom. Everything is end for end. Wisdom is folly. Folly is wisdom. Weakness is power. Leaders are servants. God's people are nobodies, yet possess all things. Paul backs up his point here with two Old Testament quotations. Verse 19, For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Man's philosophies and methodologies that counter God's wisdom always fail. Man's wisdom ruins sinners. It does not rescue them. And no one is going to ever outwit God. Don't go there. He says to them. He says to us, don't go there. Don't go outside to calibrate the gospel message to what is acceptable to a world that is blind to it. It's irrational. It's insanity. Stop it, He says. Realize who you are. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. That is... Stop the boasting in Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. For all things are yours, verse 21. For all things are yours. That's an ironic statement, an amazing twist of logic here. They're claiming, I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. And what's he saying? You're not of them. They're yours. They are the gift of God to his church. Don't pit one against another. Don't get on one side over another. Again, just kind of their cultural problem. Don't do that. They're a gift to you. I think, just a quick sideline here. Do you have a favorite theologian? Do you have a favorite author? Some of you maybe need to diversify a bit. I'm not saying that means read everybody and all kinds of weird ideas and the like. But don't get so locked into one theologian that that's the only way you can see the Bible. Where they are faithful, they're all a gift to the church. And some who are off in some areas are a gift to the church in other areas of their writings and thinking. So think widely. Perceive the gifts that God has given us. And lock into your favorite, that's fine. But just be watchful. Am I so locked in that it's really become a party spirit? I'm really oriented toward this one theologian and everybody else just doesn't add up. I think we need to be watchful there. Don't make us into idols. Let no one boast in men. For all things... Are yours, verse twenty-two. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, let's keep going. Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future—they're all yours in Christ. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. It's all there. You have it all in Christ. That's where our concentration is to be. Because you belong to Christ, who is Himself taken up in the Godhead, everything is yours that you will ever need. So stop your bickering, stop your arguing, and the division, the disunity, the petty factualism of choosing favorite teachers. You are all united in the risen Savior who has secured for you eternity itself. What Paul is doing here is coaching them To solid food to understanding how the gospel of christ transforms relationships and reorders priorities remember we talked last week the milk of the gospel is what brings us to salvation in christ the solid food is not some deeper theology has nothing to do with the gospel it's the gospel applied it's the implications of that gospel in every area of your life. Every nook and cranny and how it transforms the way that we think about everything. Now he's doing that here with them. He's, he's giving them a taste of solid food. He's saying, you have everything. These gifts of teachers to the church, the world, life, death, the present, and the future. Commentators have noted here, it's, it's I, I think very insightful, but... Commentators have noted here. Do you see those phrases there, those those words? That's everything the world frets about. These things are tyrannies to those who are not in Christ. They fret over world affairs, obsessing over wars and climate issues and diminishing resources. They fret over life and its injustices, its shortages, and its dangers. They fear death and obsess about keeping it at bay. They fret over the present. They fret over the future. But in union with Christ, think of it, believer. By trust in the gospel, these very features of life are sources of great joy to us as God's people. God owns the world and everything in it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. God will never leave us or forsake us in the present and he has secured for us an eternity in his presence in the future. Talk to unbelievers. See what they write. They are scared to death about these things. Talk to a believer who's walking in fellowship with Christ and we say, this is our glory because of what Christ has done. You are Christ's. He said, start living like it. This is an embassy of Jesus in Corinth. Get it fixed. Start shining out this message of Christ crucified and risen, for it is this message that saves and no other. Eden Baptist Church, what are we building together? What are we building upon Are we building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again? Are we constructing on that foundation a life together that will bear rich fruit and reward in eternity? None of us can render judgment on that today. All we can do is strive to live as Christ's faithful servants to labor together and to honor His Word. How do we do this? How do we make progress in building rightly on the foundation together? This passage certainly teaches us how to proceed. If it doesn't work out all the details, it teaches us the basic process. So many churches begin with the world and work backward to the church. So they search out and study what works. They ask, what will please people? How can we even entertain them? What is a message the world will find relevant, safe, and affirming in every particular? I always just laugh at that, like Jesus wasn't worried about that. (laughs) Affirming? There's a place for affirming. Jesus was like, pick up your cross and come die with me. What's comfortable about that? The question is that what atmosphere, what choreography, what professional standards can we employ? What philosophies and values does our world champion and how can we sanitize such with a few Bible verses? Let's bring that all together as we do all of that research and say, now we know how to do church. No, we know how to mirror our culture. So track in the exact opposite direction. What we need to do is to start with the New Testament and work our way out from there. We need to plead with God to show us what He wants His local churches to be in purpose and in function. We stand on the foundation of Christ crucified and risen, and then we start with what the Bible teaches about Christ's saving grace, His vision for the local church, and we work our way out from there in practice. That will likely mean that we pray longer and more than the average Christian finds comfortable. Certainly the average church hopper. Why do you pray so long? It will mean we sing songs not on the merits of their musical attraction to our world, but on the merits of their God-honoring message in word and expression. It means we will saturate our life together with the Word of God as His very voice to us. We will long to know that Word, we'll long to know what it reveals, and with zeal to put it into practice. Here again, the world will find little understanding or desire for the length, the depth, the content of our treatments of Scripture and assembly. I've watched people... 10 minutes into a sermon, 15 into a sermon, just get up and walk out of here. I've watched people sigh, one guy, sigh, put his head down on the chair in front of him and try to sleep. None of them have ever been back. That's no feather in the cap, maybe I'm just really boring, but you're not going to understand the interest, the desire To know the word with length, depth, and content, if you don't believe it to be the very words of the living God, it will mean that we pursue peace and reconciliation and unity as we honor the one another commands of Scripture. It will mean that we labor to love one another and labor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as a solid food implication of the gospel. It means that we will stoop to help the downtrodden, grieve with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. It means that we will, to the best of our ability, welcome only true believers into our assembly and will also obey Christ by exercising church discipline in the interest of the purity of the church per His command. And it means, among a long list of other things that could be stated here, that we will baptize believers and gather with thanksgiving and devotion around the table of the Lord. It means that we will here commune with and declare our devotion to our Lord as we together remember His death until He comes. And may then the way that we approach this table of remembrance and communion reflect that we are well aware that we are the temple of the living God, indwelt by His Holy Spirit. Father, aid us to that end now as we come to the table and aid us to this end, we pray as a church in all of these points of application and so many in line with them. We plead, Father, that You would deepen and grow us as an assembly and even grow us now as we gather around this table to remember the Lord's death until He comes. May we commune with Christ here, and with one another as His body. In His name we pray. Amen.